Welcome to Trending Health, where we provide you with valuable insights and perspectives on the evolving healthcare industry. Brought to you by Dynamic, Trending Health explores industry topics that are real, relevant, and worth discussing. I'm your host, Jen Burke. In today's episode, we're going to discuss a few recent newsworthy items we think healthcare leaders should be considering. I'm here with Dynamic's Mindy McGrath and Ryan Hummel to talk about what's trending now. Mindy, what headlines have you been following lately? Jen, I've been following the big one, and that is the news out of the Supreme Court that they have upheld the Affordable Care Act in a ruling um, that probably surprises some. Uh, You know, in a 7-2 vote on a very conservative court, um, the justices decided that this case was based on really the ability um, and the standing of the plaintiffs to bring the case to be heard in front of the court. Um, but it does uphold all components of the ACA, including the the aspect of the individual mandate, which really has been zeroed out right since 2018 and had very little effect on how the ACA has really performed. Um, but I think it's a big deal because you think about the people that have been would have been affected by invalidating the Affordable Care Act. It's a really, really broad piece of um legislation. It not only impacts coverage, we think about the 31 million people that have actually achieved coverage through the ACA, whether it's through the marketplace or expansion of Medicaid. We think about some of the value-based models that we are seeing kind of come out into the marketplace that are a direct result of CMMI, which is established through the ACA. And even the biosimilar approval framework that life sciences companies depend on. Um, you know, I think it's it's just a big piece of legislation and for it to be upheld in this court ruling uh, probably sets the tone for future, you know, any future thoughts of taking this forward again as a challenge. So that's the one I've been following. I think it's big news. I think it's big news for everybody that's impacted by the ACA. And I think it's big news for healthcare companies that have been operate, operating under the ACA as all law of the land for the last 10 years. Yeah, Mindy, I think it's a great point. And, you know, just an add on. The idea of pre-existing conditions remains as well. And, and, you know, we've read that something like 133 million Americans, which is, um, you know, the New York Times says that's half of the people under the age of 65 have some sort of pre-existing medical condition that was potentially going to disqualify them from getting a health insurance policy or cause them to pay higher premiums. This also is upheld there. So, you know, some big, you've, you've mentioned this, this law, the ACA is entrenched in American society. So the opposite vote could have had some huge ramifications on, on the momentum of the ACA. And it also covers so many folks. And I think a few things I just wanted to mention about that. Um, in, in 2010, there was something like 17% of folks, this is pre-ACA, were not covered by insurance. And, and the latest kind of study on that is that only one in 10 people still don't have insurance. Now that's still an uphill climb, um, but that is an enormous amount of folks that are covered and have been covered um, for the last you know eight or nine years. One of the things, Ryan, I was just thinking when you said this is... Um... Think about the Biden administration's priorities for their health care agenda. It was really based on building off of the Affordable Care Act. So now you have a ruling that upholds the ACA and allows the Biden administration to continue to focus on how they springboard from the ACA and continue to um, expand it, improve it, 
and and build off of it. So I think that's another outcome of this ruling that's pretty significant. Mindy, like you said, one of the core components of the Affordable Care Act was the formation of CMMI, one of the main drivers of innovation in healthcare across the industry. And there's been some news coming out of that group as well. There's been a lot of talk or, or maybe not a lot of non-talk from the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Innovation, CMMI. The new director there, her name is Liz Fowler. And um, she has released some information around the vision of her plan going forward. Um, and, you know, in the past, CMMI has had a lot of voluntary models that have come through. And, you know, depending who you talk to, there's some discussion on if the voluntary models themselves have been advantageous or have moved kind of innovation forward in a patient-centric way in the U.S. healthcare system. And Liz Fowler says pretty, pretty clearly that, you know, over the past 10 years, voluntary models um, have had a, maybe a negative impact on the ability, uh, the ability to kind of generate this system-wide thinking and systems thinking and move people in the same direction. So, um, you know, she's she has been very clear about shifting um, the stance of CMMI to pushing more federally mandated models. Um, and, you know, she has acknowledged that mandated models uh, for health systems, for physician practice groups, and the like also come with their own set of disadvantages, right? Yeah, and Ryan, I think one of the big things that we've seen over the course of the years since CMMI has been rolling out these models, right, is that providers that were within a system who weren't generating revenue within the model tended to exit the program and those doing well tend to stay. And so the problem is that you end up with a risk selection issue. And I think CMMI, because of the criteria they used around reducing costs across the entire system, it made it very difficult. And as a result, that is why you had so much churn in these voluntary models. And I think now, you know, we're 10 years into it and there definitely is this recognition that you know, perhaps making things more mandatory will help achieve some of the goals that CMMI sets out in these models because they certainly have introduced plenty of them through the years and we've only seen a couple of them really kind of get some stickiness to them where they've had that outcome that, that was originally intended by CMMI when they were introduced. I think I read somewhere, Mindy, that CMMI has launched nearly or at least 40 payment models since its inception that occurred and um, in parallel with the passing of the Affordable Care Act. And it involved something like 18 million patients, 200,000 providers, but just the fact that there was 40 new payment models over the last several years um, shows the churn and the change um, that has occurred uh, throughout the history of the CMMI, which is known as the Innovation Center for, and the Innovation Heart um, that was authorized, like I said, by the ACA back in the day. And th their task of kind of designing and implementing new payment models to attack the triple or quadruple aim has really good intention. I just, you know, I think it'll be interesting to see how these mandatory models play out. Along with the, the innovative ideas around payment models, uh, Fowler also acknowledged that part of the, the focus this year will be on improving health equity and tackling some of the social determinants of health, which are, you know, as we know, a major goal of the Biden administration. So it looks like CMMI is, is making moves 
to be more aggressive with their payment models, but also start to broaden some of the um, aspects that get incorporated into the models that they roll out. So we just talked about all of the different changes and all the many new payment models that have been introduced through CMMI, Mindy. Um, and what we're seeing is something kind of the opposite. Um, over there at AHIP, we haven't seen any updates to the mission um, since the formation of it, I think in 2003. And we just got some news around a rebranding effort from them. Yeah, and I think, you know, AHIP's CEO probably described it best. And he's like, you know, we're not changing how we describe the work that we do at AHIP, but how people think about the role of health insurance providers in their lives from making coverage and care more affordable to breaking down barriers and good health. I mean, I think like this rebranding from America's health insurance plans to just AHIP is meant to articulate that they are and see themselves as connectors of care across the board. And it reflects this broader view um, that comes with the shift in risk to providers and other risk-bearing entities. And that health insurance is significantly broader than maybe what people had traditionally thought of when they thought of you know, health insurance organizations. I wonder to a certain extent is PR versus, you know, how they really see themselves. But then I think on the other hand, look at some of the new entrants coming into the market around the insurer techs or some of the payviders, right? That models that are starting to be introduced, they all would fall under an AHIP umbrella. You know, I was thinking the other day, um, I think it was when Anthem CEO did their investor call it was noted, right, that the traditional insurance company that they were has given way to this digitally enabled platform for health that they are becoming. So this is a big national insurer, right, that is also repositioning how they are thinking of themselves. And I think the AHIP rebranding is really meant to reflect also how, how health plans are starting to think about themselves in this kind of new evolution of a healthcare market. And when you really look at the statistics, it's it was fascinating to me, right, that 30% of health of the health insurance market is actually going through fully insured commercial insurance because what we have seen, right, is this transition where employers are really self-insuring. And so as a result, health plans of, of today are really acting more as third-party administrators or maybe group health plans for smaller businesses. So I think just the movement underneath, right, in the sector itself also, you know, created some opportunity for AHIP to rethink, um, you know, how they represent that sector as a whole. And um, they have some work ahead of them, right, to really start to uh, chip away at the level of distrust that we know still exists for many, um, many members that see health plans in a somewhat negative light or distrustful way. But it is a, an interesting start, and we'll see how it plays out in the marketplace and what kind of acceptance there is with it. Speaking of criticism, there was a key announcement recently from the Institute for Clinical and Economic Review, or ICER, you know, which is the nonprofit and frequent critic of drug makers for excessively high drug prices. You know, they're planning to add health insurance policies to to their line of sight or or their crosshairs per se to investigate how are potentially health insurance policies harming patient access to care you know following some of the research that um, the group had presented 
that argued against um, cost sharing and how it shouldn't be shifted to patients when there are no medically appropriate lower cost options. This is interesting. I think it's fascinating that ICER is taking on this review. The scope is a little bit of a, a mystery to me because part of what they are not going to look at is whether cost sharing should be reduced for drugs on which payers receive larger rebates and whether payers should be asked to demonstrate how their policies on drug access save overall healthcare costs. So you know, maybe this is a stepping stone to get there um, for sure, but I, I just feel like it's missing part of the equation. Um, if you're you're really going to dive into um, the cost sharing aspect of this, it seems to me that there should be some weigh in by ICER on whether cost sharing should be reduced for drugs on which payers receive large rebates. Otherwise, like, what is the the end result on this? It is definitely fascinating. You know, when I think of ICER and the Institute for Clinical and Economic Review, I, I automatically go to life sciences and pharma companies. So this is kind of a, a little bit, I have a little whiplash from that announcement. But the, the release on these plans is, I think we need to take an, an entire year to examine the drug coverage policies and, and figure out, you know, and this is a, this is a very subjective term assess the fair access to these prescription drugs and talking about tiering and the idea if they're reasonably priced. So I, I like that we're talking about it in the podcast today because I think we will definitely have some follow-on dialogue of how that's going as long as they release information. Um, because deepening this look at payer policies and how they benefit or how they, how they kind of impact beneficiaries is going to be very interesting. Well, one thing we know, Ryan, right, is that Struck benefit structures, especially since the introduction of high deductible health plans, have really created pain for consumers who have high out-of-pocket costs in those structures. So I think as we get deeper into this and see where ICER goes with this, um, maybe it starts to highlight right some of the complexity that we see, not on the clinical side necessarily of a drug, but when you start to get into the coverage piece of it and you're talking about tiering of drugs and the fact that like drugs can be tiered differently because it's based on how the manufacturer and the payer or the plan actually contract. So you know, this might be one of those evolution types of things where ICER starts at point A, you know, they already did some initial um, research, then they're moving into a second phase of it and then they phase, you know, further aspects of it into their research to come up with an opinion or some assessment on the value of looking at the coverage side of things in addition to the clinical therapy itself. Um, I just think it's interesting to me that ICER has kind of pivoted some of their attention, you know, from what they had traditionally done and are now looking at the coverage side of the model. As you mentioned, kind of the idea of costing for a drug, it brings to mind another kind of newsworthy article that we saw in the news in the last couple of weeks, and it's around the FDA and, and, and that agency's approval of an Alzheimer's drug. And for those of you that are not paying attention to this, there was a lot of controversy around that approval. Um, and, it's, and it's a drug that is, uh, I think, $56,000 per year, which is priced by Biogen. Um, but it, it's, it's meant to really address one of the profound diseases of our lifetime, that's Alzheimer's. And um, the approval of that drug came with some, some stipulations and some you know, re-review 
Um, and there was a lot of tension, it seems as though, that occurred in the FDA committee in approving it, uh, resulted in some resignations from some of the committees as well. Um, but all in all, um, the initial approval was done. And I think Biogen is planning to ship these drugs out in a few weeks, specifically to memory clinics. Yeah. I think the big headline around this too is it's the first therapy to address Alzheimer's in over 13 years. I mean, that's how, how complex getting a product to market has been for a disease that has a really high prevalence number. Um, no, not only in the US, but also globally. And so I think that's an interesting piece of it. And the other piece that, that struck me was the power of patient advocacy groups in this therapeutic class and you know, just how strong and vocal patient advocates were to try to advance a product into the market so that patients could have access to something to try to stem the deterioration that occurs when dealing with Alzheimer's. So I think there's other elements to this story beyond the price, beyond the, the FDA approval piece of it, but really speaking to the power that you can see coming from patients when they really believe, right, that um, they want an option. They want to try anything. As always, Mindy and Ryan, the healthcare industry continues to move quickly. I can't wait to hear what we'll be talking about next month. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of Trending Health. For links to resources discussed in the episode, to subscribe to the Trending Health podcast, and to explore if Dynamic can help your company manage ongoing healthcare industry change, visit trendinghealth.com. Tune into the next episode, where we look forward to providing you with more insights on the healthcare industry.